Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny skies. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. We begin with this. Agnes Scott College will begin the fall academic semester remotely on August 20th. In a statement, Vice President for Academic Affairs and Dean of the College, Christine Cousins cited, quote, It is with a profound sense of sadness and disappointment that I write to inform you that we have made the painful decision to move to fully online courses for the fall semester. Now, Dean Cousins cited the increase in the percentage of young adults testing positive for COVID-19. She also says that the plan includes summer workshops for faculty and staff to enhance their use of remote technology. In related news, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is withdrawing a request for an emergency hearing in the state's lawsuit against Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms and the entire city council. The hearing was scheduled for today. Now, the lawsuit was in response to the city's order for all to wear masks in public and other restrictions. Now, a spokesperson for the governor says he wants to, quote, continue productive good faith negotiations. Fulton County Superior Court Judge Jane Barwick had ordered both sides to attend mediation. As for Georgia's COVID-19 cases, well, there are 170,843 confirmed cases and there are 3,509 reported deaths. Also, 17,138 are hospitalized and of those, more than 3,000 are ICU admissions. This, of course, according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Coming up next, more than 200 Georgia State University black faculty members sign a letter urging the president, Mark Becker, to implement new policies all centered around race and diversity. We'll hear from two members of the collective. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. More than 200 black faculty at Georgia State University have signed in agreement a letter to university president Dr. Mark Becker. Among the detailed list of changes, the letter calls for recognition of three black women who, through the courts in 1956, sued to desegregate the institution. However, at that time, the Georgia Board of Regents ignored the federal ruling. Still, as the letter suggests, the three women, Mary Payne Elliott, Barbara Pace Hunt, and Iris May Welch deserve statues or some permanent marker, scholarships, fellowships, or even classrooms or buildings named in their honor. But there's a lot more the Coalition of Black Faculty are seeking in terms of changes or the implementation of new practices and policies. And at the core, 
it's race and diversity. We're joining me now, two of those Georgia State faculty members who signed the letter to President Becker. First, Dr. Elizabeth West, professor of English and also a scholar in African-American and women's literature and the African diasporic literatures of the Atlantic world. And also, Dr. Jacques-Cory Cormier, clinical assistant professor of health promotion and behavior in the School of Public Health. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Professors, in the letter, you all cite, I'm going to quote it here, we invite the university to seize the opportunity this moment presents to address stubborn disparities that sustain white supremacist structures and systems and to adopt anti-racist practices and procedures in hiring, tenure, promotion, and retention. I want to talk about this moment, and Dr. West, I'll begin with you. Talk about this moment that we're in and why you see now is the time for the university to really address a lot of what you all have put in the letter. What is this moment to you? I think I almost don't even need to say it, Rose, it's so obvious. I think it's a moment that in our own university and everywhere, we understand what this moment is. You, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic crisis like none of us in our own lifetimes have ever known. I mean, it's, it's the things we read about and talk about in academia, uh, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's a health crisis moment that is magnified many times over for black and brown communities. Um, and of course, then that trickles uh, into, well, it explodes into um, the, you know, the impact on economics for the most vulnerable groups. Mm -hmm. And as, you know, as an institution in the heart of, you know, Atlanta, an urban institution as Georgia State likes to uh, proclaim itself, uh, we're a neighbor, we're part of the community, and we don't have, uh, you know, an admirable uh, past in terms of how um, we have, um, you know, how we've operated as a neighbor. So it's a moment like this that, you know, that calls us front and center because we're in a crisis. And the question is, you know, as a neighbor, as a recipient of grant uh, tuition dollars from the, you know, uh, the very people we sit in the midst of, Georgia State has to step up. Dr. Cormier, what about you? What is this moment that we're in through your lens? The conversations have been had in the past, and that's when these issues should have been addressed, but we have had these conversations before. As someone who was a graduate student at Georgia State University, and now faculty. I can say that I have appreciated the fact that I've had fellow students and faculty who have uh, not shied away from calling out systemic and systematic issues at the university. Nonetheless, there has been and there still is a reason to address the lack of representation among the faculty for a university that proudly boasts how they serve a diverse student body. And if the Georgia State University's mission statement is going to include supporting students from all backgrounds, then having faculty from all backgrounds support that mission as well. And so though there is a visibility of the injustices that people of color, especially people of the African diaspora 
uh, have faced uh, in this country sort of, you know, being a lot more visible, uh, I would say is, this is a complimentary uh, request mm-hmm. in light of the historic reality that has always been there. Looking at time cyclically, this moment is similar to the 80s, the 50s, mm-hmm. and even when some of our first African-American students graced the campus of Georgia State after having to sue for their education. Mm-hmm. And before we continue to dissect some of these changes, you all are first asking for a meeting with President Becker, correct? And I want to update our listeners on this because you all initially sent this letter, I think, on June 19th. He did respond on the 22nd, but there's some new developments. You all are going to get a meeting with President Becker? Or some of you, I don't know if all 200 of you plus will, but you all will be able to get a meeting with President Becker? Yes, Becker, uh, the recent, the most recent communication uh, from President Becker came on Friday. And it the design is that we will jump one more loophole before we get to the top to meet with the associate provosts. And then we will have a conversation with Becker. I'm not certain who of the group, the coalition, will meet with Becker, but it will be a welcomed uh, conversation. It's a long-needed conversation, and we're happy to see that he's moving toward that conversation. I want to go back to something that Dr. Cormier said, and he talked about the fact that there's a great disparity in, in the racial makeup of faculty. That's a stark difference to the racial makeup of the enrollment. So you all want to see that gap significantly closed. How do you propose you about doing that? What would be your suggestions to the university? Or is this something that they should take the initiative to close that gap? Well, I think that with some of the initiatives that even in the email today that was announced in regards to the Office of Institutional Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, I think the purpose of that office is going to be to address some of those issues. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, this is a university level issue to address. Like I said, as a grad student, when I was TAing for my different professors to when I began to teach my own classes, some of my students said, you know, that was the first time that they had a, a black instructor for their class. And these would be juniors and seniors about to go out into the world. And Georgia State uh, has a college to career process with the quality enhancement plan. And one of those competencies is global slash intercultural fluency. Mm -hmm. And so if we're going to be teaching our students how to uh, embrace a world of diversity with diverse thoughts and diverse backgrounds, then that needs to be reflected within the faculty. And I do think that from the university level, they need to incentivize, but also demand that their different colleges and schools uh, put that on the forefront when they begin to do their hiring practices, especially for the tenure track uh, faculty positions are the permanent faculty positions. Dr. West, someone listening may say, well, listen, shouldn't the university and the president's office, shouldn't they already know that there is a significant difference in terms of the racial makeup, the enrollment, and as it relates to the faculty? Is that something they should have already been aware of? It's a good question, and, and the answer is obvious. We're dealing with very intelligent people here. Uh, it's, it's not that they don't know. Uh, it's, it's the historical, um, you know, ongoing question of, you know, why they are so slow 
to respond to what they know. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this is, um, you know, this is, this is no mystery. It's no new information. The question is, how do we move the needle in a significant way? And one of the problems with academia is, you know, we're just kind of boiling pot of, of people who think. And so there's always a lot of thinking going on and very little action. And especially when that action has to be bold and brave. Academics have a lot to say, but the question is, what do they do? Mm -hmm. You know, where are we when we are needed? This is a moment, in fact, in which we're really asked that. You know, we're at a crisis in our nation. Where are we as academics? And Georgia State, again, highly uh, competent leaders, Mm -hmm. but those leaders have made a decision not to respond to this issue because it's a difficult issue. If you're just tuning in, I'm joined by Georgia State professors, Dr. Elizabeth West and Dr. Jacques Corey Cormier, and we're talking about changes they feel are crucial in policies and practices at the university. And at the core of this, it relates to race and diversity. Let's talk about that D word for a minute, diversity, because depending on whom you ask, you'll get a lot of different answers. How do you all define diversity and inclusion, and what it should look like at the higher education level. Dr. Cormier, you can add to that. Uh, You know, I think that definition, uh, well, the word gets thrown around a lot, Mm -hmm. and it means something different um, for institutions that are in different places. You know, so for instance, we are Georgia State with a student population of what, something like 40%. Harvard University, I'm a black student population. Harvard University is a university that maybe has 5%. But both of these institutions are concerned about diversity. Diversity means having a community, and that is a community of faculty, staff, and students uh, that is representative of the demographics the you know the 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 global kind of national and global kind of de- demographics that our students will engage when they graduate so whether you're at harvard where you you know where you have maybe 5% blacks or you're at georgia state where you have 40% uh there is a need to ensure that you are introducing your students that you are you know having them engage with Uh, people across multiple demographics. Now, in Atlanta, that need is is heightened Mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, again, uh, Georgia State sits in the center of the metropolis, is serving this population of students, uh, many of them who are, you know, have, have, you know, needs, um, you know, that tie to economics, uh, you know, and, and social needs. And they have very little representation in terms of people who look like them. Mm -hmm. The faculty have the same problem. Mm -hmm. You know, I, you know, as a black faculty, I would like to see leadership that looks like me. I'm no different than my students in that way. When they walk into a classroom, it's comforting to be able to have someone who looks like you and say, wow, you know, I can do this. I see somebody like me doing this. So it's important, you know, so diversity uh, is important for all of those kinds of reasons. Diversity, real diversity can help us move uh, away from the kind of racism in action 
that continues in the academy, you know, and Georgia State, again, is no exception to that. Dr. Cormier, when we talk about diversity, it's much more than a checklist is what Professor West has just said. You want to add anything to that? Yes, definitely. And first want to define diversity and then talk about it with Georgia State's branding. And so when we're talking about diversity, I know it's quick for people to think, oh, well, if you add people of color, add black folks to a white space, then all of a sudden it's diverse. Uh, But if they're all coming from uh, upper middle class backgrounds, uh, all coming from the same nation, um, all, you know, in the same region, then, you know, there's, there's a, it's not as diverse as it may appear. And so Mm -hmm. diversity isn't just about one's racial uh, affiliations. It's also about, this is what I like about Georgia State. We have students that are parents. We have students who are returning back to school from working uh, for for decades. So we have people who are six years old, 20 years old, 30 years old. We have veterans. We have people with different disabilities and responsibilities to their families. And so when we're talking about that diversity of the faculty and representing the students that they serve, you know, thinking about it, not just from uh, having black faculty members there, because if you you know, have some sort of uh, elitist, um, you know, uh, people who are supposed to be representing this subset of your of your student population and then becomes problematic. And so just recognizing the diversity of experiences, the diversity of racial uh, and ethnic uh, backgrounds, that becomes uh, important, not just as as race, but also in lived experiences and other things that define us uh, as people and identities. And then thinking about Georgia State's branding, like Dr. West said, mm-hmm. Georgia State prides itself on the diversity and being in Atlanta, which is a diverse city in a city where there's a, a lot of economic range represented when it comes to the black community. And even with the president's recent email, uh, he says that our diversity is our key, is one of our key strengths. And so from a branding standpoint, it would make sense that when someone thinks about Georgia State, they're thinking about receiving a high quality education from a wide range of professors that can give them insight on different lived experiences, but also in seeing themselves represented in the front of the classroom and at the top of the university. You all are also asking for the university to immediately end its university's police exchange program with some international law enforcement agencies. Professor Cormier, I'll stay with you. Why should GSU end this partnership? What are the issues here that you all see? So as, you know, be honest, as a student and as an early faculty, I wasn't a aware that we had this partnership, this international partnership with different policing uh, entities. Uh, Nonetheless, I know that if the university wishes to be a true community partner in understanding community issues, that they need to continue to and put funding and support for those efforts that engage in the community that allow for community buy-in and just as important community ownership of the research process. There's numerous research centers at Georgia State that already incorporate the community's input when it comes to the research process. And I hope that the university continues to further support those types of initiatives. 
Professor West, you want to add anything? Yeah, I would just say too that I uh, and, and I'm almost embarrassed to say that uh, until very recently uh, had no idea that the university uh, uh, had this kind of engagement and and I guess I never thought about it because I didn't think that I was part of a military complex. So it, it wasn't something that uh, again I thought I, I had to even think about. Um, I, I, I don't see the need for it as mm -hmm. an institutional edu you know, uh, uh, as an educational institution. I don't understand the need for it. Uh, as a black person serving again, sitting in uh, a black community like Atlanta, uh, where black people are more often victimized by police violence. I am, you know, my, my you know, uh, my impatience with this kind of thing is then magnitude. And then when you consider, again, you, you know, much as economic as well, you're taking tuition dollars, uh, using them to engage in these kinds of pursuits. You have a population, a huge population of students who are more likely to be subjected to police violence, and you're taking their tuition dollars uh, uh, you know, community dollars and you're putting toward that. And, uh, you know, I don't think you'd find anybody in the black community anywhere who would want to take their hard earned money and, and pay you uh, to teach people how to be more violent against them. In President Becker's initial response to you all, there was some pretty big news, and that was the development of the Africana Study Center. Uh, is that encouraging for you all in terms of being optimistic about further initiatives or also even adhering to some of those changes that you all want? How big is this development of the Africana Study Center? I think it's, I think it's huge. Mm -hmm. um, I would argue it is as huge as uh, the founding of African American Studies 25 years ago. Um, we need it and we still need African American Studies uh, but as we have, you know, expanded to understand why it's important to, you know, to see Africanity, to see African-American experience as part of a larger African diasporic, uh, um, you know, existence, a center like this is, uh, you know, is important. It's important because we have uh, faculty at Georgia State across disciplines uh, whose work focuses, hones in on, um, you know, populations of the African diaspora. Uh, and again, uh, it's, it's, it's just a much needed uh, uh, entity, um, uh, you know, as part of our institution. So I think it, I think it's huge that um, we in the College of Arts and Sciences uh, have a dean uh, who committed to us or with us, got on board with us. Um, this this was a long time coming. You know, it didn't just happen uh, a month ago because things got, uh, you know, got hot in 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 the public eye. This has been years in in the making. So yes, this uh, is huge. Uh, and I would I would also commend the president for you, you know for listening and and understanding and appreciating why it's important. I have just about a couple of minutes left, but I want to go ahead and get this question out there to y'all because 
you ask for a meeting, you're going to get the meeting. Is there a fair and acceptable timeline you all feel gives the institution enough time to either spearhead more of these initiatives or implement some of these changes? And Dr. Cormier, I'll let you begin. Um, what does that timeline look like for you? Well, uh, First, in regards to the Africana Study Center, uh, just want for our listeners to know there are already multiple centers at Georgia State and some that do focus on uh, different uh, ethnic groups. So this isn't something new, like you said, just something that just came out of nowhere. And also our, our affinity groups at Georgia State were already set in place at the end of last semester. Um, so these aren't just reactionary things that we're gathering uh, to do. We want sustainable uh, sort of things. And I think with the timelines, the, you know, just say we're dealing with a lot of smart people who understand logic models and processes and, you know, putting things in, in action. So I, I think as long as we're doing more than just talking and that the timeline is something present, because when we don't have things written down, just like the reason, you know, why we sent out this letter of requests, is that it's for accountability, but also for focus. And so I, I think, I'm not sure on how long it would take to start centers in general, mm -hmm. but as long as we have it in writing that we want to get that started, and this is where uh, we want it to be in regards to our start point, uh, I, I think that could be beneficial. Professor West? I think, I think that this is the exact thing that um, needs to be part of the conversation uh, that is had with Dr. Becker, and that is, what should we expect? I mean, within a year, I think there are a number of our requests that can be addressed. Uh, and um, to, uh, again, to the president's um, credit uh, with his announcement today, I think he understands that Georgia State has an opportunity um, to, uh, to show that it is ready to make some significant uh, steps toward uh, racial uh, inequities in, in our own institution uh, uh, again and, and, and beyond. But there are things that can happen almost immediately. And, and I think uh, some of the president's response today uh, is an example of that. And, and that I'm happy to see. Um, there, there are other things that are going to take work on. Um, uh, again, the thing, um, you know, the thing that I call the racism, the historical racism in action that is ongoing in Georgia State, uh, it, will, it will take some time to weed that out. But the president needs to lead us in that. And I think his announcement today about community forums, uh, this is what is needed. He has to, you know, he has to be the face of this. He's the president of the university. Uh, and I commend him for accepting that responsibility. And before I let you all go, I have to ask this because, as we all know, we're in a pandemic. Um, universities and, and colleges are making decisions about not only how they will allow students to come back, but even Will this continue throughout the next year? Uh, real quickly, what concerns do you all have as it relates to how the university will will begin this fall semester? Professor West? I'm extremely concerned. Um, I'm concerned uh, as, you know, as a citizen of, uh, you know, the, you know, the Atlanta area, as a citizen of the university. Um, we are being 
um, arguably strong-armed by the university system of Georgia. Um, and this, uh, again, is um, one of those instances where our own leadership, our university leadership, has to take our health, our safety, as the number one priority uh, and find solutions that are going to work and understand that uh, for those groups in the community that are, you know, most at risk, um, uh, we have to um, we have to consider how we can protect those groups. And and again, uh, this has to come from the top. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we have groups that have you know submitted letters to the president to the USG, and our leadership in our institution has to be at the forefront for this. Professor Cormier? My, especially coming from a public health perspective, mm -hmm. my concerns are about the most vulnerable of our students and thinking about the intersectionality that our diverse student body, you know, just what really embodies. Uh, we've limited the uh, number of students to a room to 25% of room capacity. That is a better effort towards minimizing potential spread. Uh, but we, you'll have to just realize that when we're looking out for the most vulnerable, it actually benefits everyone. And so I would hope that GSU, when it's considering reopening the buildings, that they consider our students need to take the elevators to get to class on time. Our students are parents, they're health workers, healthcare workers. They have some, you know, some disabilities and some are currently unemployed. And these are the people who are going to have to get into those elevators that are pretty much needed, especially when you start getting up to the high floors to make it to class on time. And then you think about the intersectionality for those who are essential workers who are dealing uh, with family impact of shifts in the family dynamic of now that a traditional college student, 20 years old, is now having to take care of their parents or look over uh, other family members who are younger because school hasn't opened up for them yet. And especially looking at within our black student population, that becomes truly important to understand. And I just truly hope that they consider uh, all those vulnerable populations when deciding to open up the physical buildings because learning isn't confined to four walls. Mm -hmm. Learning can occur uh, across multiple platforms and medians as long as we have competent people who are presenting information and assessing that information for our students. Learning can occur anywhere. Dr. Jacques Corey Cormier, Clinical Assistant Professor of Health Promotion and Behavior in the School of Public Health. I was also joined by Dr. Elizabeth West, Professor of English and also a scholar in African-American and women's literature and African diasporic literatures of the Atlantic world. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Real Scott. Here's a question. Where does the nation go from here? That's been a crucial question in the midst of the nationwide protests. And while many of the protests are calling for changes in policing or police reform, there's also the overall action to address systemic racism. Which brings us to the Southern Poverty Law Center. Perhaps you've heard of the organization and its mission, which by their definition is this, quote, fighting hate and bigotry, and seeking justice for the most vulnerable members of our society. Well, Margaret Wong is the new president and CEO of the Southern Poverty Law Center, and she joined the SPLC back in February, well before the protests and before the coronavirus was declared a pandemic. So we have a lot to talk about. Margaret Wong joins me now. Margaret, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Rose, it's a great pleasure to be here. I've asked this question so many times, but I'm always intrigued about what I think the answer is going to be. And I ask people, you know, to reflect on just this extraordinary time that we're in right now, not only as a nation, but just globally, whether it's the pandemic or the protests or the combination of both. It is. It's an extraordinary time. Uh, I think that it's changed life as we know it, and it's not temporary this is going to be ongoing for, well, certainly for many more months and and likely for many more years. It's causing us to rethink how we work and it's causing us to rethink what we work on, which is also really important. Which brings me to this because these most recent protests and demonstrations, they began back in May. And it's important to note that, look, we've been here before as a nation. But through your lens, Margaret, is there anything different about this this movement, this time that we're in right now? I think there is a qualitative difference, Rose. In 2014, after Michael Brown was killed, I was in Ferguson and I was meeting a lot of the young people and activists who took to the streets and who really led the way in calling for public protest about police killings. and. I remember being surprised that there weren't more people joining them. I was horrified at what had happened and it wasn't the first time and it certainly wasn't the last. And I really thought there would be more outrage. And it has been both tragic, but also reaffirming to see so many people turning out. And in so many places, including small towns all across the United States and places where there is not much diversity in the population, Mm -hmm. but people really, really taking the time to learn and to speak out in ways that actually are quite inspiring. The nation right now is honoring Georgia Congressman, civil rights giant John Lewis. And we think about a young John Lewis in 1963, giving that speech in Washington. This is 50 plus years later and some of the same issues that the nation is grappling with, that's decades ago. And then you, even before then, you look at what progress through someone's own lens the nation had made since Reconstruction or or since, you know, then the Civil War. And you can even go back to the American Revolutionary War. Why is it that it's taken 
such a extremely long time for whatever this equality is supposed to look like in our nation when you think about the Declaration of Independence and what we're all afforded to as citizens of this country. This is 2020. You know, the country was founded, you know, four centuries plus ago. You're absolutely right, Rose. I, I honestly believe it's because we've never truly reconciled our past. We've never acknowledged. We have never paid tribute to those who have fought these battles in the ways that they deserve. And because we haven't had truth and reconciliation, and we need that today. Is that part of your philosophy or ideology that led you to the Southern Poverty Law Center? You've been doing this work for such a long time, especially on a global scale. So why, why bring it home to the Southern Poverty Law Center? So my work for the last few decades has always looked at issues of discrimination and oppression based on identity. And you're right, for many years I was looking at at the treatment of women in other parts of the world or the treatment of different castes in other parts of the world. But when I started doing human rights work in the United States, I was so struck by the fact that we don't use the language of human rights in the United States. We don't talk about human dignity in the ways that I had heard people in other countries talk about. People don't claim their rights in the United States the way that children are taught in other countries. Hmm. And I really believed that there was no point in talking about human rights elsewhere in the world if I wasn't doing my best to try to advance and protect human rights here at home. Let's dissect that a little further when you yeah. say human rights is not talked about in this nation as you've seen you know, abroad. You know, when uh, W.E. Du Bois submitted a petition to the United Nations right after it was created in the 1940s, asking for the Human Rights Commission to look at the situation of African-Americans he was prescient. He knew that's exactly what that body had been designed for. And the fact that Eleanor Roosevelt fought that effort and refused to allow the United Nations to look at that situation actually resulted in the folks in the United States deciding that they could not demand human rights, that they had to ask for civil rights, got cut up in the, in the Cold War mm -hmm. with Russia. Right. And Russia was using the Soviet Union was using the treatment of African Americans in the United States as a as a way to bash the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so the civil rights movement was founded and civil rights work has done so much for us. But it also then abandoned a lot of the other human rights that are recognized internationally. And we certainly don't talk about human rights in our schools today. Mm -hmm. You know, Margaret, you begin this new role coming to the Southern Poverty Law Center amid some internal challenges within the organization, some heavy allegations. Last year, then-President Richard Cohen resigned after allegations of widespread charges of racial bias and even sexual harassment from co-founder and civil rights attorney Morris Dees, who's actually been on this program a few times. What's your approach coming into this organization as a leader? And given the work that you all do, but you have to address some internal issues as well. What's your Absolutely. approach been like to deal with that? And are you still 
dealing with it. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, the SPLC is still dealing with these issues. And the reality is, Rose, that we're, we are trying to align the way we operate internally with what we advocate externally. And that means looking at some hard truths. That means doing a lot of listening. That means understanding where people are coming from and what they need to grow and to thrive as we go forward. And that means doing our best to lift up the dignity and rights of all of our workers, even while we're advocating that same goal mm -hmm. to the outside world. And that's rolling up our sleeves and doing the hard work that's needed. How do you assess the work or the effectiveness of that work after you've rolled up your sleeves? You're trying to be this this leader and bring everyone together by listening, but then also you said making some hard decisions, looking at some hard truths. So how do you assess then what's working, what's not working, and what still need to be done internally? So we have to set some clear goals and we have set some clear measurable benchmarks. And so one thing we're doing is we are, we're really focusing internally on creating a culture that, that celebrates, embraces, and mandates diversity, equity, and inclusion work across all aspects of the work. We're doing training of ourselves, anti-racism training. We're doing um, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion training across the organization. We're also looking at how we hire staff, how we retain staff, how we promote staff, um, and what opportunities we create for people to grow in their positions. Those are all pieces, but it's obviously mm -hmm. across everything we do, which means we also have to look at the issues we're working on and ensuring that those issues really resonate in the communities that we're here to work alongside. In continuing to do this work, we are in a pandemic, as you mentioned. So how do you all, how are you all doing this work and when we're all compromised by this extraordinary time? It's true. We have all of our staff currently working from home. So although we have offices in many, many cities across the five states of the Southeast, everyone is actually working out of their homes or out of the homes of loved ones um, and trying to cope with all of the challenges of daily life that this pandemic has wrought. There's no question uh, it's gonna be tough for everyone uh, as schools and daycares are not coming back uh, to work or, or functioning the way we're used to. A lot of people are gonna have to be making tough choices about how they balance their work life, their personal life, their caregiving life. Um, and that's something we're trying to spend a lot of time thinking about and preparing our staff for, but also thinking about the work externally to the SPLC. We're doing a lot of litigation, trying to get folks out of detention or incarceration facilities. We're also doing work to try to lift up um, efforts to uh, get more resources to states and cities so that they can be responsive in this crisis to folks who become unemployed or who are seeking food security. These are all critically important issues right now. The voice you hear is Margaret Wong. She's the president and CEO of the Southern Poverty Law Center. We're talking about the mission of the organization and what changes Wong plans to bring to the Southern Poverty Law Center. For our listeners who may not be familiar with the SPLC, Margaret, you were founded back in the early 1970s in Montgomery. 
the overall mission is, is it still the same? I mean, you all have three primary areas that you focus on, fighting hate, teaching tolerance, and seeking justice. This is 2020, you know, we're in the age of social media and all that. Your mission is still the same, but maybe your delivery is a little bit more, I guess, varied? Sure. I mean, there are strategies now we didn't have in the early 1970s, like social media advocacy and and public outreach efforts. I will say that our mission is still very aligned with where we began. We are still focused on white supremacy. We are still focused on using litigation as a tool to seek remedy and justice for people who have been denied or oppressed. But we're doing other work as well. One of the big issues that we're focusing on now is actually protecting voter rights. And while that's something that the SPLC has done in the past, I'm really proud of our board and our leadership for taking the step to make a significant investment in voting rights this year. We're committed to helping grow the number of voters registered and voting in the elections this year, particularly in communities of color, among young people, and returning citizens, people who are just regaining the right to vote. These are all communities that we're very, very anxious to have their voices heard and their opinions seen and witnessed as we go to the ballot box this fall. Matter of fact, this is a multi-million dollar initiative that you all have launched. You're going to help local nonprofits register voters of color. $30 million, I believe. It's a lot of money. That is right. <laughs> it is a lot of money. And we've been very lucky at the SPLC that we've had supporters and advocates across the country who believe in our work and who've lent support to our efforts. Because of that, because we have those resources available, it's even more important that we're investing them in communities and that we're sharing those resources with community organizations who are doing the hard work on the ground of reaching out, of getting people registered and getting people to participate in our civic life. In the name itself, Southern Poverty Law Center, will there be more initiatives targeting the southern part of the country? Absolutely. In fact, we're recommitting to the focus on the South as our primary area of work. Um, the SPLC has just undergone a strategic planning process. We're not quite finished, but we have reaffirmed that our mission is to focus on racial justice in the South and beyond. And we're working to build up our presence, both doing community outreach as well as policy work in the five Southeast states where we have offices. Those are Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, and Mississippi. And in those places, we're trying really hard to listen to communities and to work with ally organizations on the ground to push for reforms that will really shift power to those who have been denied access for so long. You know, Margaret, each year, the organization you all published this annual Year in Hate and Extremism report. And from looking at 2019, this year's findings, you all said, look, there are 940 active, quote, hate groups across the U.S. And you also documented an increase in the number of white nationalists and anti-LGBTQ and anti-immigrant hate groups. What do you make of that? Well, you know, Rose, hate has been with us since the founding of the country um, and before that. And our effort in doing this annual report is to try to document 
those organizations who embrace an ideology of hate and who are actively doing work or trying to recruit other adherents mm -hmm. to that ideology. It's a, it's a barometer of how much hate there is, active hate in our country. And it's by no means the only one or even necessarily the most accurate because it's hard to capture how much is out there. But I do believe that the fact that we've been able to document that rise in hate that you've referenced, particularly over the last three or four years, is a reflection of this moment and of the policies of the person who's in the White House who has embraced some of that ideology and welcomed people like that into his administration. You believe the words of President Donald Trump and those who he has surrounded himself with, either as advisors or those within his own administration, you, you all believe that that is a direct correlation to the increase in whether it's hate speech or the actual increase in groups or memberships in these groups? You directly attribute that to President Donald Trump? I think that there's no question that the groups have become more bold and outspoken and are more proud to represent that ideology in public because of the president. They probably had that hate before he came along. So I don't know that I could attribute a growth in hate to him, mm -hmm. but I don't think that it would have been politically or socially acceptable to embrace those ideologies prior to his taking the White House. And yes, I think he has encouraged and spurred that behavior and that rhetoric um, to the point where you now have one of his advisors, Stephen Miller, who actually is has an extremist file. We've put out an extremist file on him because of his connections to white supremacist groups. Margaret, this obviously, of course, is a huge election year. We're less than 100 days away from November's election. What concerns do you have leading up to the election in terms of potential voter suppression, in terms of uprisings related to whatever happens after the election? If the person who folks wanted doesn't get elected or reelected or what have you, what, what concerns do you have? Do you feel that this nation is just right on the, the edge of something monumental in terms of uprisings and, and protests? I think it's hard to predict what's going to happen in November other than the fact that there will absolutely be significant efforts to oppress the vote. Carol Anderson, one of my favorite authors, has written a book, uh, One Person, No Vote, which documents the extraordinary efforts, not just in the last few years, but over the last several decades, and frankly, centuries, to oppress the vote of so many people in the United States. And it is very clear that those suppression efforts are increasing right now. And that is my biggest concern, is that because of the pandemic, people will be afraid to go to the polls. It will be a health risk to go to the polls. And it's never been more important for people's voices to be counted. And so our focus is on making sure that we get as many people registered and to the ballot box as possible. And Carol Anderson, I believe, is a professor over at Emory University right here in Atlanta, been on the program before. Margaret, what is your vision for this organization moving forward? Have you had a chance to sit down and think about your priorities that you want to focus on? I know we talked about internally, but with the work that you all do externally, What's at the top of the list for you? I would really love for the SPLC 
to be seen as part of the Southern community that is working so hard to make change. I have loved listening to Stacey Abrams. You mentioned she was on your show. And I've loved listening to other leaders in the South, including your mayor, uh, Mayor Bottoms, talk about how they have visions for the South. And I very much want the SPLC to be a good partner in that effort. I want the SPLC to help ally with um, organizations who are pushing for legislative and policy change that will transform how the South shows up for its people and its constituents. And that's where I hope the SPLC will be. Can you all do this work with a nonpartisan lens? You mentioned Mayor Bottoms, Stacey Abrams, Democrats. Is there room, is there space for all the others that might identify with another political party, whether it's progressives or independents or Republicans? Can you all do this work with a nonpartisan lens? Well, the Southern Poverty Law Center Action Fund is actually a C4 that has lobbying efforts and, and is considering supporting candidates. And that is a part of our work that I think is really important. But I'll tell you, I think we absolutely can work with any party so long as they prioritize racial justice and they prioritize human rights and civil rights for all people. And if that is their goal, then we share the goal and we'll work together on achieving it. And that's really the bottom line. We need people to stand up and make their position known on those issues. And when they do, we have to believe them when they say that's what they believe. So I hope I hope SPLC will continue to work with all parties, but it has been difficult finding folks who are willing to stand up for racial justice on both sides of the aisle. Margaret Wong is the president and CEO of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Margaret, good conversation. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, Rose. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closerlook. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.